We are um, thankful you're here with us. I'm Daryl, the assistant pastor here. We've been, uh, for the last little bit, walking through the book of Revelation together, uh, where we uh, are looking at Revelation, not necessarily as it comes to us uh, in Scripture, but as we, we're looking at different themes that we notice in the book of Revelation, uh, and then sort of talking a little bit about those. How does uh, each theme, sh- what does each theme rather show us uh, about what John saw, uh, and then what does that show us about the Lord uh, that John was uh, certainly wanting us to see? And so that's where we've spent uh, all of our time uh, since the beginning, really, of this uh, semester. Uh, last week, we saw how worship is central to who we are, that the praise of Jesus uh, is so central to who we are, that we are not just uh, humans who happen to be worshipers, that we are actually worshipers who happen to be human. Uh, knowing that all of creation uh, sings, all of creation worships. Uh, and so we want to take a look at that and see uh, what does God have for us in that. So um, today we're actually going to shift that focus from what is worship to who uh, is worshiping God in the book of Revelation. So who does John see worshiping whenever he's kind of dropped in the middle of this worship scene that Um, In heaven, even as we sit now, that there is this spirit of worship that runs through everything that is done, uh, both on earth as it is in heaven, as we prayed in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, So if that is the case, then who does John see worshiping? Uh, Who does God want worshiping him and why? And so as John is swept up in this great vision, he hears a number and he sees a multitude. And when he turns and looks, he notices Uh, something here in Revelation 7, which we'll read in just a second. He notices uh, that heaven is full of a lot of people who don't look like him. And God wouldn't have it any other way. And so if heaven is the church perfected, then the church is full uh, of all types of people, people who don't look like us, people who are in different social strata. And because it's full of all types of people, then believers are tasked with taking this message of the gospel into all areas of life. Uh, So that's where we're going to look. We're going to be in Revelation 7, if you have a copy of the scriptures. Uh, If not, it'll be on the screens. Uh, We're going to be in Revelation 7, starting with verse 9 uh, through verse 17. So let's give our attention this morning to the reading of God's holy word from Revelation chapter 7, uh, beginning with verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray together. Father God, this morning, um, we may not experience you as 
uh, as the tear-wiping God that you are, because uh, our hearts are hard, life is hard, uh, Lord, we're sad, uh, we're angry. Uh, so Father God and King Jesus, would you, uh, would you make sense of our hearts? Would you unravel um, the tangled up mess that they are? Uh, would you quiet the psychological noise uh, that always happens, uh, voices from the accuser, voices from our own flesh, uh, our own sin? Uh, Jesus, would you quiet all those voices and allow us to see you clearly, uh, even if it's just for the next hour or so? Would you let us see you for who you are, uh, that you are the lamb on the throne, that you're in the midst of your people and that you are a shepherd? And that you lead us to places that are good for us. Um, and Lord, in our suffering, you aren't leaving us alone. Uh, you are with us. Uh, so Jesus, would you be uh, king to us? Would you be uh, a friend to us uh, as we look at your word and what it has to say? And we'll leave here rejoicing because of all the good that you've done. It's in your name we do pray. Amen. Uh, so Revelation uh, 7, 9 through 17, three things we're going to see out of this passage. We're going to see a church for lots of people a church of lots of suffering, and the God of lots of comfort. Uh, so let's look at the church for lots of people. Revelation 7, if we go back to verse 9, uh, is a wild passage. Uh, the verses that we didn't read, verses 1 through 8, I would recommend that you would read those at some point. Uh, John says he sees angels holding back judgment that comes to the earth while God's people are being sealed uh, and being saved. Uh, they're sealed for safety, and he hears a number that is sealed, and that number is 144,000. So John hears this number that, that the angel says, these are who all is sealed in heaven. It's 144,000 of them. Um, which feels maybe like the amount of people in this room. But there are 144,000 of them that he says are sealed. Which isn't a lot of people. And so we know that Davidson County has like 700,000 people. Is heaven, does, heaven, does heaven have less people than Nashville? I don't think that's what John's saying. It certainly can't mean that. Because that's what happens in the first verse, eight verses. But then in verse nine, we're told that John looks and beholds there was a multitude of people that he could not count. So if you remember, this is one of the paradoxes, paradoxi that happens uh, in the book of Revelation. Uh, that John hears something and then when he looks and sees, something else is revealed to him. Uh, chapter five, when the scroll comes out, all of heaven is like weeping and crying and John's crying. He's like, who's worthy to open this scroll? The angel tells him the lion of Judah can open the scroll. And then when he looks, he sees a lamb as if it had been slain. Same thing is happening here. 144,000 are sealed, but then he looks and there's a multitude that he can't count. And there were all types of people there from all types of countries, all types of social strata, the rich and the poor all together, a bunch of different languages, a bunch of different skin colors. And so what John heard, the 144,000, and what he saw were different, or were they? Again, remember verse 5, he heard the Lion of Judah, he saw the Lamb. So here's what John saw. He saw every believer that has ever been from before Christ's incarnation and after his incarnation, all at the same time. And the way that the Bible attempts to capture this is if you, uh, if you know your Old Testament history, remember every word in Revelation is a hyperlink to the Old Testament. 
Uh, so you have the 12 tribes of Israel. These, this is representative of all the people who existed and believed in Christ before he came. Right? So their faith was forward-looking. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. David believed it was counted to him as righteousness. They believed in a future event that was going to come, that there was going to be a Messiah who was going to come and deal with all the evil and redeem them. So you have those folks. They're kind of represented in the 12 tribes of Israel. Afterwards, you have the 12 apostles. They're sort of representative of all the people after Christ's incarnation, after the cross, after the crucifixion event, who will believe in Jesus from now on. So you have all the people who believed in Jesus before he came, all the people who believed in Jesus after he came. And the Bible is saying they're all together. You have the 12 and the 12. Multiply that together, you get 144. That's what big math told me. You get 144. And then on top of this, John throws on a thousand, which means a complete number in Hebrew is a thousand. It also means a whole lot. It's like when we say a bajillion. So what he's saying is there's 144,000 people there. John wouldn't have understood that that was a lot of people, right? But then he looks and he sees there are more people than he can even count. So that in that 144,000, we can't take that literally, okay? Um, there's a lot more people than that in heaven. A lot of people are trying to say that literally. It doesn't work. Because of verse 9, when John looks and sees that you can't count the people, which is another promise that was made to Father Abraham, who had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. Abraham was told, you're going to have descendants who are going to be more than the grains of sand on the seashore, more than the stars that you see in the sky, which means you aren't going to be able to count them. John is saying, this promise has come, through, come true. It's come through, and it's come true. That when he looks and he sees heaven, it's complete. With all the people who have ever believed, you get the perfect church. The perfected church consists of all who have ever believed in Jesus. And John said, it's too many to count. We can't count them. And so then we have to ask a question. I guess it raises the question, how did they get there? How is there people from every tribe and tongue and language and people group? How did they all get there when all John knows is his little world, right? Remember John's on Patmos? He's being, um, he's exiled. His church is being persecuted. All he knows is his little world. And then Jesus gives him a glimpse of what's to come. Because what he wants John to see, what, what God wants us to see in this, is it's one of the distinct markers of Christianity. So it makes it different from all the other religions, is that it doesn't have like a geographical center. The Bible Belt likes to think they are, but it doesn't have a geographical center. You think of the Middle East when you think of Islam, you think of Asia when you think of Buddhism, you think of India when you think of Hinduism, but Christianity doesn't have anything like that. And the late Tim Keller said it was first dominated by the Jews, then it's adopted by the Hellenists. It spreads to the barbarians in Europe, then it comes to the Americas. Today, the church is exploding in Latin America, in China, in Africa. My friend David Cassidy said that the average Christian, he is not white, she is brown. She's about 28 years old. She doesn't know anything about C.S. Lewis. 
She doesn't know anything about Tolkien. She's never been to a YP pickleball night. She doesn't know any of that. What she knows is Jesus, and what she knows is suffering. And so what John is wanting to do for the church here, what God is giving John the opportunity to do, is kind of jolt him out of this idea that, it, that the church is this big. And he's saying, look, John, and see, it's all out here. Which means it's all spread, John. Which means that what, you're, what you fear, what you're worried about as you're sitting on Patmos and you're hearing news of how Rome, the Roman Empire is persecuting the church and they're killing your friends. And you've, maybe you've got this idea, John, that the church is gonna get squashed, but I'm gonna give you a vision of what it is. They can't stop it. They can't contain it. That this message of Jesus who died on the cross for the sins of the world takes this super highway route out of Palestine and Galilee and it goes to the very ends of the world just as God said it would. He said, John, people are talking about this. People are sharing this. People are sharing the gospel with their neighbors, with their friends. Remember what God said. He said that the knowledge of him would cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. So when John, when John looks and he sees heaven, he sees a number that he can't count. God is giving him this insight to say, this gospel message, John, that you're in exile for, that you've given your life to, is real. And it's not gonna die with you and it's not gonna die with your church. It's gonna spread by the testimony of the saints, which we're gonna talk about here in a couple weeks, and the blood of the lamb, and from willing souls who, as we said last week, loved not their own lives, even unto death, meaning they saw something in Jesus that was more beautiful and more believable than any other thing that's ever been paraded in front of them, so much so that they said, Rome, if you wanna take my life, take it. You're not taking anything. Remember the worst case scenario is that I live. This is what Paul says, is to live is Christ and to die is gain. The worst case scenario is that you keep living. This is gonna be the only hell that you'll know. So John is in exile. He's on the island of Patmos. His church and his friends are being hunted down and killed. They're being persecuted. They're being persecuted financially. They're being persecuted physically. They're being persecuted intellectually. The state and the government bearing down on them for professing the name of Jesus above Caesar. And one would be tempted like John to think that this was it. That this church, this tiny little fragile church is no match for this Roman government that comes in. They've got all the money they got all the slingshots. they got all the power. Like they can come in and squash us. And John's given a vision that, John, it's actually just beginning. What you know about the Roman Empire, what you know about the little churches, all that is just beginning. It's all going to spread. It's all going to explode. And in 2,000-some years, the Roman Empire is going to be gone even though we're told that we think about it all the time. The Roman Empire is gonna be gone, but Christianity is thriving. Christianity's still here. Christianity hasn't gone anywhere. And so it spreads because people take that message to other places. We're doing a mission trip to Nicaragua. My friend Ethan Fernandez is, is leading it. It's coming up in February. Still time to sign up if you're interested. 
We're taking that trip because we believe this. We believe that God wants us to take this message of his salvation to those who haven't heard it, both in word and in deed, which is how Christianity spreads. So when John looks and he sees this perfect church more than he can count, God is telling him this is spread because the words that you've written about me, John, this spreads because I'm real. There's this famous story of the emperor uh, Julian who was in the fourth century in Rome. Um, There's an article written about him. It says this, the Roman emperor Julian writing in the fourth century regretted the progress of Christianity because it pulled people away from the Roman gods. Remember, this is what John's up against. His people are being killed because they don't worship Caesar as Lord. They don't acknowledge that Caesar is Lord and they don't acknowledge any of the other Roman gods, which means they're not getting any money. Because that's what Rome does, right? They want, your, they want your cash. Throw some coins in here. Say Caesar's Lord. So they're not getting any money. And so Julian's getting mad because his money's getting taken out of his pocket. And he says this, Christianity has been, speci- has, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. He says this, it's a scandal that there's not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. Here's why Julian's mad. Because Christians are taking care of people. He's killing them because they're taking care of people. He's killing them because they make him look stupid. He's killing them because they make him look obsolete. So these Christians are not only taking care of their own Christians, he said. Like, sure, they're taking care of each other. That's to be expected. But they're taking care of our people, the ones who hate them, the ones who kill them, the ones who think they're dumb. They're taking care of our people too, and our people are pretty mean to them. And then our people are starting to believe this. So they're not going to give us their money either. So we need to go in and we need to squash this. And he says that our own people are coming to us and saying, why don't you treat us the way that those Christians are treating each other? What a backwards message from what we hear now, right? Then we can look back at the early church and think that it was this kind of sexy time to be the church for them. Um, But it was just ordinary life for them. They had been so enamored with the love of Jesus that they couldn't help but share it. And this was an encouragement to John because remember, he's on Patmos. He's feeling pretty trapped. He's feeling like things are going to come to an end. And he's given this vision of heaven. And he's encouraged. And he's enlivened. He's enlivened to continue. And he sees that this message doesn't go forward from just having bigger buildings or having massive conferences or book deals that it came from people who were just living ordinary life. And honestly, that's so comforting to me. I hope it's comforting to you. Uh, um, Nate Bergazzi in his latest special talks about growing up as a Christian, uh, well, with Christian parents uh, in the 80s and 90s, and he said they were the most Christian of the Christian parents. Um, which is kind of how I came up. That was, the, that was the climate when I was coming up. It was all about big like pep rallies for Jesus and uh, folks getting mobilized to go overseas, go to the end of the earth. Uh, John Piper had come out with this sermon where he was yelling at people about something, um, telling them to quit picking up seashells and go be a missionary or whatever. And 
it was all about being like radical enough to go into the world. And that might be where God has taken some of you, I don't know. But here's what I do know. What John sees here is just ordinary believers who are faithful. And that it's okay to be ordinary. Every Christian that John saw was that. They were living their lives. They were worshiping God. They were discipling their kids. They were doing the dishes. They were taking out the trash. The early church didn't see themselves as radicals. They didn't see themselves as heroes. They saw themselves as one loved by God, which is a radical thought. That Jesus Christ really could love sinners. They just believed that, and then they lived their lives, and they were killed for it. Here's what Michael Horton says about being radical. He says this in his book, Ordinary. I've come to the point where I'm not sure anymore just what God counts as radical. And I suspect that for me, getting up and doing the dishes when I'm short on sleep and patience is far more costly and necessitates more of a revolution in my heart than some of the more outwardly risky ways I've lived in the past. So this is what I need now. I need the courage to face an ordinary day. An afternoon with a colicky baby where I'm probably going to snap at my two-year-old and get annoyed with my noisy neighbor without despair. The bravery it takes to believe that a small life is still a meaningful life. And the grace to know that even when I've done nothing that is powerful or bold or even interesting, that the Lord notices me and is fond of me and that that's enough. What John saw when he saw heaven was not this radical community, right, that's trying to take back the culture and they're going to overthrow the government. He saw a group of people who loved Jesus and they were willing to suffer for it. This brings us to our second point, the church of sufferers. If you look with me at verse 13, uh, the, the angel that's uh, kind of John's tour guide through heaven, uh, he see, when John sees all these people, the angel says to him, who are they? And he said, you know, he said, yes, I do. These are the ones coming out of, that's a weird question to ask. Just tell him, elder. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, he says. In other words, these are people who have been through it. They're the ones, we're told, who are clothed in white robes and have made them white in the blood of the lamb, which means they suffered and they suffered well. And isn't that what we all strive for? Because here's the deal, y'all. Y'all know this. You've lived longer than five minutes. Uh, suffering is inevitable. It's inevitable. It's promised to us. And if it's really promised to us, then avoiding it is impossible. You can't get around it. It's like going on a bear hunt. You can't go over it. You can't go under it. You got to go through it. Suffering is just inevitable for the Christian. So how do we do that well? The multitude that John saw were doing, were willing to do whatever it took to take the gospel wherever it needed to go. They knew the words of Jesus, that when he said, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it will bear little fruit. And they believed that. They believed, they believed the book of John when it says that in this world you will have tribulation. Suffering, friends, is part of our job description. Signing up for a life of following Jesus means we sign up for a life that's going to cost us something. So these that John sees in heaven who have come out of the great tribulation, have come out of a world that is soaked in sin, and they kept their faithfulness. 
You might be here, you might be wishing that you were married. You might want that above everything you've ever wanted. That's not wrong. You want it so bad you can't stand it. And we know the pain that comes with that. We also know that Jesus might be saying it's time to let that dream die. Because he has better things for us. If you're anything like me, um, this week I, I was talking about Mackenzie, my wife, not just a random Mackenzie. Um, and I told her, hey, I think I want to be famous. And she said, no, you don't. And then I got to work and I was talking to Joseph Patton, our worship guy. I said, Joseph, I think I want to be famous. And he said, no, you don't. And I was like, why are you saying this? And Mackenzie's like, Daryl, you don't even like people knowing where you live. Like, you would be terrible at it. I had to let that dream die, right? <laughs> it's got to die. What these people knew in this tribulation as they knew this, that Jesus doesn't always give us what we want. We want well-adjusted kids. Sometimes he's not going to give it to you. Some of you want to be single again. He's not going to give it to you. There are things that Jesus said, you're going to have to let this die. You're going to have to put this on the altar. You're going to have to put this to death and understand and know that what I have for you is better than that. You might be wanting to have generational wealth. Jesus is saying in his economy that the way up is down. He doesn't always give us what, he, what we want. That Christianity is a race to the outhouse, not to the penthouse. That Jesus isn't going to platform you. Jesus isn't going to let anything come above him. Jesus isn't going to let your heart chase after other loves very long before he steps in and stops it. And it's not because he's an egomaniac. It's because we are. And he's stopping in and he's saying, I love you too much to let you do this. So I'm not going to give you what you want. But I'm going to give you what I want for you. Which is life with me. Which is intimacy with me. When I was 18, I thought I was going to move to Myrtle Beach and be a bouncer and a professional wrestler. Jesus doesn't always give you what you want, guys. You don't always get it. Paul knew this. Paul said... I prayed three times for this thorn to be taken out of my flesh. And Jesus said no. And I read that passage and I'm like, just three times? That's it, Paul? You're a quitter. Never pegged you for that, Paul. You only prayed three times. What Paul's saying three times is all, is all he needed. Because he prayed fervently enough and he knows that Jesus said to him, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. He doesn't always give us what we want. Your spouse is going to die. None of us hope for that, at least in a healthy way. Jesus isn't always going to give you what you want. The life that we are given rarely looks like the one that we signed up for. And if it does, it's because you probably haven't lived long enough yet. That when Jesus called us, he called us into a life of suffering. And he called us and he said, I will be with you in that. I was reminded this week of the story of Polycarp. He's an early church uh, father, early martyr in the church. Uh, he was uh, the last martyr that had a direct line to the apostles. So John was the guy who discipled him. He and John got coffee. Like he was, he was with John all the time. And except for when John was on Patmos. He was this early adopter to the Christian move, uh, movement. I believe he was the last martyr that had that direct apostolic line. He was an older man. He was 86 years of age when the Roman goons came to arrest him. They showed up with clubs. 
They showed up with cuffs. They showed up with chains. They showed up with whips. Uh, And in the account that I was reading out of Fox's book, they showed up with all these things. And these young men who were there to take him into custody were like, wait a second, he's an old man. Like, he's not going to put up a fight. And Polycarp says, no, I'm not going to fight you. I am going to ask that you give me an hour to pray, and then I'll go with you. And he tricked him. He prayed for two hours. And they took him, and they told him on the way to the Colosseum in Rome, they said, just announce Jesus, man. You're 86 years old, dude. You're on fiber medicine. Like, you're old. You don't have to do this. You don't have to die this way. And he said, no. I'm not going to. They said, Polycarp, consider your age, they said. You've lived a long time. You don't even have to mean it. Just say it. And then we won't have to kill you. Just say Caesar is Lord and you can go back home. And he said, 80 and six years I've served my God and he's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my God and my Savior? And these men continue to appeal with him. Polycarp, they're going to sick the beasts on you. They're going to send lions and tigers after you, and they're hungry, and they're going to eat you. And the man said, if you try to despise the animals, then I will have you burned. And Polycarp said, you threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour, and then it goes out. But you know nothing of the fire, of the judgment, and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting, he said. Bring on whatever you want. This made him so mad that they skipped the animals. They went straight to the burning. They gathered a bunch of wood. They threw polycopper on it. They tried to nail him. He said, don't nail me to it. I'll just stand here. He said, he whom I serve will allow me to endure the fire. And then they just lit it up. They set a man on fire because he believed in Jesus. They set him on fire and he was just a faithful guy. And then witnesses who were watching said the fire shaped itself into the form of an arch like the sail of a ship filled with wind and it formed a circle around his body and it did not burn him. (laughs) This is kind of funny. His flesh smelled like bread, they said. (laughs) And he looked as if he was gold or silver glowing in a furnace. We smelled a sweet scent like frankincense or some other precious spice. And then the man who set him on fire was so mad about this that he just took out his sword and he stabbed him and he killed him. And then he burned his body because he said, I don't want the Christians getting any idea that we don't know how to start a fire. I'm going to show you we know how to burn him. And they burned him and he died. And here's the thing. I'd imagine if old Polly were here now, he'd probably punch me for using him as an example because he wasn't trying to be a hero He was just trying to be faithful. So when John looks and sees this mass of people in heaven, how does it grow? It grows by faithfulness. It grows by people being faithful enough to share the word of God. It's a a watching world that looks and sees how the church endures its suffering, and they want to be a part of that. When given every opportunity to hang it up, given every opportunity to denounce, giving every opportunity to run from it, they stayed faithful. John says, I'm going to write this down so that we can do the same. That we can remain faithful when things are hard. It might not be, I hope not, lions and tigers coming after you. Just move if it is. Call the cops. That's not who's coming after us, but fear is coming after us. Addiction comes after us. Bad relationships come after us. 
If you're like me, you might live in fear that the other shoe's gonna drop, that things are going just a little too well and God's gonna pull the rug out from under me. Or maybe worse, you're living the Christian life out of obligation. It's just what you do. Your parents did it, so you do it. It kind of gets you ahead a little bit. But you know, and I know that obligation is terrible motivation. Doing something just because you're supposed to do it, that's terrible motivation. That just brings duty. That doesn't bring any delight. So when we, look at, when we look at what John tells us about heaven being full of all different types of people, so many people that he can't even count, we know how they got there through the spread of the gospel. But what do they get from being there? What's their motivation? This brings us to our last point, the God of lots of comfort. If we look at verse 15, the verse 15 rather in following, it reveals their motivation They're with Jesus. They're with Jesus. They know that heaven is heavenly because Jesus is there. These who John saw as sealed for God were sealed by the covenant of redemption. The lamb in their midst, we are told, is their shepherd and he will be their guide. Friends, for all who believe in him, he will give the endurance and the obedience to see you to the finish line. He promises this in Philippians chapter one, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Scripture promises us this. And what John sees when he sees this multitude, what he wants us to see when we see this multitude is that we're counted among them. If we believe in Jesus, we're accounted in that vision that John saw which means that all this suffering is going to be worth it. That every pinch point, every pain point, every graveside mourning, every passed over promotion, every what if you've ever had is gone. They will not hunger for me any longer. They will not thirst for me anymore, he says. And God says this, they won't do this because they'll have me and I'll have them. It's not just that, that we have God, it's that God has us. So intimate is his love for you in verse 17 here, that he wipes away the tears from your eyes, that he takes his nail-scarred hand and he wipes away your tears, that he's close enough to you, that he does that, that you have his face, that his holy hand will run along your cheek and it's not the touch of abuse. And it's not the touch that's gonna leave you feeling shameful afterwards. It's not the touch that says, why can't you just do better? It's the touch of the maker of all things that says, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. See that all that I have is yours. Enter into the splendor of holiness and see that what you inherit for my sake is greater than everything that you gave up for my sake, that I will be your God and that we will be his people. That is the promise in scripture. I'm your God, you're my people. Sin has separated us and we're gonna live together again. And isn't that the hope of every heart? That all this is worth it? That this suffering has a bottom, but God's grace doesn't? 
Is that the hope of every heart? It's to shake loose the cobwebs in your heart. It should knock the rust off your souls that the one who holds everything in his hand holds us there. That we have his face. That we'll see what John saw. That we'll be with us and 144,000 of our closest friends and we will be with God. The God who wipes away tears. And he's the God who wipes away all the reasons that those tears fall in the first place. And after that last tear falls, that we would be with him. He's the God of all types of people who've experienced all types of suffering. And he brings all of this comfort to say, I will wipe away every tear from your eye. You'll never be hungry again. You'll never be thirsty again. That man will never hurt you again. You'll never walk through that illness again. But I will wipe away all the reasons that you're crying. And I would implore you as much as I know how to make room in your spiritual DNA for a God who can love you that way. That if suffering is part of the job, that suffering has a bottom, but his grace for us does not. That it flows at a rate that we can't even stand. You can't outrun it and it can't run out for you. Friends, that's the Jesus that we serve. That's the Jesus that John saw. That's the heaven that is ours if we place our trust in him, which is an invitation to do so. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are so good to us. Remind us of that. As we come to your table, as we partake of the elements, as we feast on your body and your blood, uh, Lord, transport us there. Would you do that for us? It's in your name we do pray. Amen.